Hello and welcome to Recovery Corner, where we introduce you to those making a difference to help people navigate the road to recovery. I'm Thomas Becker with AverHealth, and today we have two special guests to commemorate National Recovery Month. Darcy Kamau, coordinator of the Cobb County DUI Court in Georgia, and one of her treatment court graduates, Melissa Gissy Witherspoon. Melissa had a had the courage to share her story in a book, I'm Sober, So Now What? A Journey of Hope and Healing. Hello and welcome to both of you. Hello, welcome. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, so grateful to be here. Oh, thank you. Now, back in May, you both shared your stories on our webinar in honor of National Treatment Court Month. Today, we're excited to have you back to tell us more. Darcy, let's set the stage. Tell us about your court and how you're helping the residents of Cobb County on the road to recovery. All right. We are a DUI um, accountability court program. And so we focus on finding multiple offenders um, or high risk offenders. Um, we're predominantly misdemeanors, but Cobb County is a fairly large um, suburb of Atlanta. So our county population is about three quarters of a million. Um, our program right now, our census is about 75 um, and that's, that's a little bit higher than average. So 70, I always say is our sweet spot. Um, but we are actually celebrating our 15 year anniversary soon. So we have in that time, um, served over 700 participants in our program. So, um, I've been with the program in a few different roles and capacities for the last 13 of the 15 years. So I feel like I'm definitely getting old. Um, <laughs> But we'll just frame it in that I have a lot of historical knowledge. Um, and Melissa, you're now in, in North Carolina, right? I am. I relocated to Winston-Salem, North Carolina about seven years ago. So take us back a decade uh, when you were in Cobb County. Uh, you shared in the webinar that you were literally on the floor of your basement contemplating suicide. It's such a heartbreaking tale, but with a happy ending. Um Tell us what got you there and what happened. Really, the that was the lowest rock bottom that I had experienced. And unfortunately, in my um, 20 years of um, drugs and alcohol, I, I had several relapses. I had been in and out of the system and in and out of different recovery programs, um, especially towards the last... Uh, two years before my rock bottom, searching for that better way of life that you hear about, but I never could quite get everything working in the right direction. So I would get just enough to survive and rebuild a little bit, and then I would plateau, and then I would bottom out. And so I, that is what the hamster wheel I was on looked like. And it was, um, you know, after 20 years and several failed marriages and, um, you know, career losses and, um, you know, losing custody of children, I I just couldn't do it anymore. I had been to a 30-day inpatient treatment facility and I came out and um, a couple of days later for, after I got home, I was on my way to an AA meeting. And instead of going to the meeting, I had pulled over to my usual spot liquor store and drank in the parking lot. And it was at that moment that I realized that um, I would never 
beat addiction. That's what I had convinced myself of. So I made a plan to end it all. I didn't want a, a slow, agonizing death. Not really worried so much about myself, but I just couldn't look into the eyes of the people that I loved around me and hurt them anymore. And I couldn't figure out how to stop doing that. So I was going to put a stop to it. So that's what led me to my basement floor. Um, and fortunately, uh, my attempt did not work. So I was able to um, uh, find treatment, go back to treatment almost immediately. And, and this time I had found a dual diagnosis treatment center and it was a long term and, and I could kind of get on the right path of straightening out some stuff before I was launched back into the world. But um, right before I was able to go off and do that, while I was in my basement attempting um I had a, a vision and that is really what inspired me to, to give it one more try, one last good go at it. And I write about that in my book. Yeah, what was that vision? Yeah, I write, a, I write about it a little bit in my book. Um, I, was, I was kind of fading in and out because I had really um, taken advantage of some of the medication sent home with me from my treatment center and I mixed it with my um, go-to vodka beverages. And um, then I also, you know, had tried other things. And I, so I was fading out. And um, I all of a sudden kind of came to and I saw something in front of me. And it was a figure and it was um, communicating with me, not really in a way that you and I understand communicating through, you know, using um, our mouth or our voices. But I did hear a voice and the voice gave me a message of um, why I was not dying because I was begging, please let me go. I can't do this anymore. And it was answering me that you're not going to die. You, uh, you have a purpose and this is what it's going to look like. And in order for that to, to come to fruition, you will um, need to take the necessary steps to get well so you can go out and do what I'm asking you to do. And, um, and, you know, I was invited to accept the offer and I did. <laughs> I write about it in my book that I'm sure when people are reading it, they think, well, after all the things that you list you had done to yourself to end your life, you probably were hallucinating. And if that's how people want to interpret it, you can call it a hallucination. I call it a divine intervention. You can call it what you want, but it was clearly a turning point um, that moved me from within and I had never felt a, fel a feeling like that before. And, um, and so, and, and luckily, uh, however, the, however you want to see it, it lined up that my husband came home and found me. I had planned to do it when I knew that he would be gone for a long period of time, but he forgot something and he came back and, um, he could, he could tell that something was off and he came down to the basement and found me. And, um, so that's, he was able to physically carry me to, the treatment facility. Wow. I mean, you're right. Divine intervention, whatever you call it, um, it, it, it answered the call. It did. It came to me and I, and I, and I, and I listened to it and I'm, I, I don't know, Darcy can share with you when I was at that point in my life, I wasn't a very good listener. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a minute because I wanted to bridge the gap between that moment and how you got to accountability court. And then we'll have Darcy talk about that. I was at that point in time, I was still pretty, 
fairly new in my role as a coordinator, but, and we're always learning, we're always growing, we're always evolving, we're always trying to follow the research. And I think the hardest thing to learn as a team member is really kind of like accepting the high-risk, high-needs people, the hardest ones, the ones that look like they're going to fail the fastest. Those that's our, that's our target population, right? That's what we learn at conferences. Those are the people that we need. Those are the ones we want. But those are also the hardest people um, to work with. And, but they're the most successful. And so, um, you know, I don't really... <laughs> I try not to bog myself down with a lot of specifics of people because I want to just um, bask in the in the glory of their successes rather than dwell on all of the things that got them here. But I remember specifically with like Melissa, she, um, you know, she, I mean, everybody is different and she came in, she's like, I'm going to do this program. It's going to be so easy. I successfully completed residential treatment, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, oh, she's one of those. And <laughs> she um, was very resistant about getting her GED. And that was a major point of contention several times. Um, you know, she's like, I'm married. I have a family. I don't need my GED. I've lived my life successfully without it. And we're like, that's nice, but you know, everyone has to do it and you're not special. So yeah. And I was real successful, right? Darcy, real successful. <laughs> you know, I mean, definitely I, I, it was funny when Melissa, when you said you had gone through some of your old emails and stuff, I, you know, I don't remember those things. I, I remember certainly we had a few hard days um, with you, but we kind of just held our ground, which is what we do with everyone. You know, it's really important to me to maintain consistency um, so that our program has fidelity. Um, but, you know, I really, I don't think I, I mean, there's times for sure where I sit back and wonder why I don't know if this one's going to make it to the end, but I sure hope so. <laughs> I hope we have a great story to tell at graduation one day, um, but we'll see if we get there. And I'm sure that I had those thoughts um, a few times with Melissa and, and, you know, and, and then you just are patient and you wait and you let treatment happen. You let kind of the magic take place. And I think Melissa was really fortunate to get assigned the clinician that she got in our program because our program was in a very tumultuous time uh, when she was in our program. And, and so that was, that was also divine intervention, I think. And she had a really great counselor who was able to, to do the work that needed to continue to allow her to build that foundation of success and, and become the person that she is today and the success that she is today, not only in her own recovery, but um, I am regularly humbled by Melissa and the work that she is doing in, in this field. And like, this is her mission field. This is her calling. And, and, and there is a plan for her life and she is changing lives everywhere she goes. And like the work that we do is important and, and it's, and it's helpful and it's beneficial. And I can talk to you all day long about the benefits to the community locally that our program has the money that it saves and to taxpayers and on and on. But, but we're a collective program. We are a multifaceted, multi-agency program with 10 people on our team from other departments, and it is a group effort. And then when you look at the singular work that Melissa is doing in recovery and, and the platform that she has built, um, it's phenomenal. It really is. 
Um, Melissa, what was um, how important was testing during your your time in the program? Testing was in, extremely important. It's part of the um, process of accountability that I needed that was missing in my life. Um, I want to touch on this really quick. Darcy had mentioned that um, you know we had there was there was a time. I was resistant. I mean, let's just be, let's just be honest. I was ornery and I was resistant and I was delusional. You know, you don't enter the program and then because you've signed the paperwork to the DUI court program, now you're well. I was still very sick when I came into the program and my mental thinking was sick as well. Um, but I had um, a, a circle of enablers around me. Um, not because they didn't love me, but because they also didn't understand and they were also sick with their, their, the piece that affect my, my addiction affected them and changed who they were too. That's how it works. Our whole ecosystem is disrupted with addiction. Um, and so any piece of the accountability court program that was, um, that I had to adhere to was life-saving for me because not only would I not um, do those things for myself because I just hadn't built up the self-worth and I didn't have the know-how to do the things that the, the court was asking me to do, but it was necessary and it was court-ordered that I had to do them. So if there was anybody around me in my circle that didn't understand or were um, not compliant and supporting me through it, they couldn't challenge it because the end result was that I go to prison for two years. If the program didn't work, that's what I was looking at, a minimum of two years. And so, I, you know, I, there were times when I would have to show up for drug testing or I would have to, um, I, there was, I was, I had some dilutes and I was having to find out my body chemistry and I wasn't using. So I had to find out why that was happening and I had to advocate for myself. And I have found a bunch of re emails recently um, with Darcy where I was, I was, you could see I was learning to advocate for myself. Um, and then I, there were other people that were also behind it trying to get me to say things and do things. And I hadn't really broken off on my own. And so the whole, um, drug testing piece um, really helped me more than just keeping me clean. Do you understand? It helped me learn about my body. It helped me stand up for myself and find my voice. It helped me um, uh, understand an accountability process that I, you know, integrity grows from anything where you're being held accountable. If you don't walk with integrity or know what it means or, or what it's about, you certainly learn it through these programs because um, if you say you're going to do something, then you you do it. That's what it's teaching you. And, and when you're in active addiction, you, you definitely are lacking that skill for the most part. So drug testing is extremely important. All of it, every single piece of it was important and every single piece had its challenges. Um, but it it was, it's a necessity in my opinion. Yeah. Thank you for, for that perspective. You know, Melissa, in your book, you take readers through two decades of substance abuse, multiple failed attempts at sobriety, numerous arrests, a revolving door of treatment facilities that you talked about. And of course that rock bottom on the basement floor, what led you to share your story in such a personal way? 
Okay, so remember a few minutes ago where we just discussed that I was on re and um, I wasn't really compliant. <laughs> that might be embedded deep within my personality type, where I just don't get it on the first go around, even you know, even well into sobriety. Um, I might just always um, have to think about things and and work it through in different ways before I'll finally. Um, jump into something. So um, I believe that God was calling me to write the book. I believe that the the vision that I had was beginning to come to fruition and it was time to take the next step into what I was asked to do when I was on my basement floor and I wasn't ready um, in my mind. And mm-hmm. so I was, my will um, was very much against the will of my higher power and my higher power as usual won. Um, <laughs> won the battle. Um, and so it, I, I started writing. I, I didn't know what I was supposed to be writing about. I wasn't sure um, if I was capable of it. Darcy, Darcy shared with you that I obtained my GED in, um, in the program, but I never continued my education after that. Um, I, I just didn't have a lot of confidence that um, I could be an author. Do you understand? So I was barely reading books at that point in my life. So if you don't even read books, then how can you write one? <laughs> so I had to go through all of that process. But what I did was what I do in, um, I do my entire life is just make a decision to do it and show up and do it. And so I started, I had a um, community of people, every turn I took, somebody was saying, you should write a book. I, you know, I would, and it was people that I didn't even know. Like it was clear to me that it was being spoken into me and that I should pay attention. And so I just started. I started at my daughter's softball practice. On um, I didn't even own a laptop. I had uh, notes on my phone and I would type them in. And um, then I would just keep going. And I built up a manuscript. And then I started asking some friends, you know, what do you think about this? I probably wrote for about a year in private. And then as I shared it, uh, you know, people, I got great feedback. And so I kept going. And somewhere along the way, towards the end of my writing, I was uh, fortunate to meet up with a, a, an author, a best-selling author. And um, he became a great mentor to me um, spiritually and in the writing realm. And um, it it just went from there. He would give me instructions, try this, try that. He, he didn't do it for me. And I love that. I love that my, my support system is constantly encouraging me, but expecting that, you know, I take the next steps and, and try the things and face the fears on my own. And so I did, and it became a book. And, um, my favorite part about the story about the book coming to fruition is that it was originally published almost immediately by, um, it, it actually received several offers, but um, I went with Lighthouse Christian Publishing. But um, I, I realized very early on after it published with them that the purpose of the book was meant um, for something different than the path that it was going down. And I was able to pull it from the publisher and revamp it and add some more um, personal touches that I knew would help connect the reader after they closed the pages of the book, I wanted them to be able to stay connected with people and things in the recovery community. Um, and I relaunched it through my um, startup nonprofit, Sober Now, and the proceeds from the book, rather than going to a publishing house, now go back into the sober community, the book's 
um, donations and proceeds from the books provide free copies to prison ministries, to um, sober living treatment facilities. Um, a bunch just got sent off to a safe house for um, human trafficking. So it's it's getting out there to people that need hope that can't really get their hands on it. And I, I think that that's exactly what the book was meant to do. So what a great uh, path uh, and, and, you know, circling back to help others. I love that. What, what are some of the more most important, I guess, in, uh, <laughs> there's many, I'm sure, but what, what strikes you as the most important insights from your book that you know, people are relating to or, or can learn about? Well, from my perspective, I would like to say from from front to back, the entire book is extremely important to read. <laughs> but but I am <laughs> but all of it's important. But the 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 best part about the journey, uh, book journey, is the meeting people in person, the relationships I'm building and the connections I'm building and the feedback that I'm getting after they read it, not just once or twice, but sometimes three times um, because they see something different each time they pick it up and it's a quick, easy read. So um, that's something that people can do. Um, But some of the feedback uh, that I think stands out the most is that it's written in a way that it's not just for um, the recovering addict, it's for the loved ones of too. And so it helps give a perspective throughout the book um, from somebody who's walked through it. You know, I start at rock bottom. Well, actually, I, I give insight to how I, I qualify, how I got to the rock bottom. I And I talk about what it looks like to, to, to be at that place, that dark place, and, and how you can slowly, day by day, one day at a time, pull yourself out of there. But um, I include information, a whole entire chapter about relapse and relapse prevention. And and from my point of view, because um, that was a problem for me. Some people get, you know, they stop drinking or stop using drugs and then that's it. They've made that decision and they're, they're fortunate to to stay on that path. And unfortunately for me, I couldn't really, you know, I couldn't keep a longevity of recovery time. So um, this talks about that. That chapter talks about that. And it kind of helps guide people through about um, ways to look at um, relapse in a more proactive, you know, rather than the shame that comes with relapse. Like, I don't even want to talk about relapse. I'm not going to relapse, but you, you might. And so why don't you just go ahead and, and, and be aware that that's part of some people's recovery and this is what it could look like. And this is how you can maybe catch it at certain levels before you get to the stage of uh, physical, um, relapse, which is using again. So I think that's been an important chapter for people. Um, and I think the the tone and the way that it's written, it's um, and it's a connection. And that is the most important thing to a person that is in recovery is we are, whether we know it or not, we are craving connection to something or someone. And so the way that I write it, because As I was writing, I thought to myself, I remember the times that I was in jail and I was in jail a lot. Um, I remember the times I was in treatment center. I remember the times that I was in the closet in my bedroom crying and alone. I, I remember the long car rides and tears and wishing that there was somebody who understood. So I, I wrote it remembering those things and, and talking to the reader in a way that they 
understand that they're not alone and that they're loved and that there's hope and and that sharing my experience is a, a great connection and that they've built a friendship. And, and I think, I don't know how you could get something more important than that in recovery as connection. Well, I think, uh, yeah, you're not going it alone. Um, there is help. But, you know, not everyone makes that, uh, that, that connection. Uh, not everyone can get off that basement floor proverbially. Um, and not everybody to, does. Yeah. yeah. And, and not and everybody just, does. I, just to end, the, end this conversation for both of you, um, you know, obviously that every challenge is different uh, when it comes to recovery. But from, from your experience, you know, what is the biggest challenge to someone looking to end addiction during this National Recovery Month? I think really um, Melissa hit the nail on the head earlier when you, she, the opposite of addiction is community and connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that we, we need to just remember that and focus on that. And, and there really is hope out there for everyone. Like, and I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but really like some people, it's funny when new people join the team and they try and make these predictions about these people in phase one. And I'm like, that's, that's a brave game, but you know, I learned very quickly, very early on in this field, and I've been doing this, working in this field for 20 years. Like you, you cannot predict who's going to be successful. You cannot predict who's going to, because the ones who come in, who you think are going to have the easiest time, have the hardest time, if they even make it at all. The ones who you think are going to have the hardest time are the biggest and best success stories like Melissa. Um, And I, and I think, you know, patience, consistency, sticking to uh, the things that we know um, to help lead people towards success and sobriety. Um, it's a hard job, but it, it is a purpose-filled career that I have created, and and I'm blessed because of it. And, and I couldn't, you know, there's times where I'm like, man, I'm really tired of living my life in DUI court. I've been in DUI court for 13 years. I don't want to be here forever. And, but but then there's days where it's like, I couldn't imagine doing anything different. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm going to just go out on a limb and venture to say that most of the people that listen to this particular podcast are people that work in the field, not necessarily ones who are active in their addiction and looking for help. Um, and so I really just want to be an encouragement to, to the people in the profession. I know there's a high turnover rate. I know that it's a hard job. I know that it's frustrating, but the work that we're doing is purposed filled. There is fruit. There is success stories. You know, the ones that wear us down and, and fatigue us the most, um, are really the, not the product of our labor. Like they're on their own journey. And, and I just, you know, there's times where we have to emotionally disconnect and say, you know, I hope they figure it out sooner rather than later. And if I can be there to help them on that journey, great. If it needs to be somebody else to help them on that journey. Okay. I hope they find them soon. Um, but you know, I really need to be very careful about setting those boundaries. There's, there's people, there's times recently we had an incident where I was like, I cannot emotionally connect myself to this particular case because I'm too attached already. Like I, I can't, I can't be biased or I'm too biased. I can't be unbiased anymore because I, I want to go one way and, you know, maybe it needs to go another way. And, and, and that happens in this field. We have to be aware of our own biases and, and, and really be able to connect when we need to connect, disconnect when we need to disconnect. And that's, that's a hard thing to learn. 
Um, cause then I, and I know Melissa didn't really tell the story, but she's told it before, um, in other forums about, uh, when her dad passed away and, and reaching out to me and, and I answered, um, our after hours phone number and, and was able to be there and connect with her. And because I'm just a normal human being, like, I mean, I have a heart, I'm genuine. And so, you know, I understand that the loss of a parent is, is a, is a big grievous moment. And so just to respond in that moment authentically helped build that bridge for Melissa programmatically. So I think, um, you know, that's another component to just being successful in this job. We're doing um, really hard work, but I don't want people to get discouraged. I mean, recovery month, there's so much with mental health, especially this bananas post COVID world that we're living in. Um, so much mental health, um, that is fueled by addiction. And, you know, we so many times are the hope for these people. And I think if we're just sincere and genuine and remember that and, and are patient and grace filled through our work, you know, we, we can survive, we won't get burnt out. Um, and we will continue to do the work that needs to be done because there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Oh, that is a great way to end this, Darcy. And uh, thank you on behalf of Everhealth and really the, the, your county and the country. Thank you for all you do. Thank you to all the court and probation of, uh, officers and officials and administrators and judges who are doing all they can every day to keep people on the road to recovery. So Darcy Melissa, thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And we'll chat again soon on Recovery Corner. Thank you. Mm-hmm.